1: at thehartford.com. President Biden, as you just heard live on Bloomberg Radio, announcing the next phase in the fight against COVID, with cases and hospitalizations rising, the Delta variant taking hold. And now a mandate for federal workers and contractors, for that matter, to be vaccinated and prove it or be regularly tested. President Biden speaking as well directly to the political side of this whole story
2: the vaccine was developed and authorized under a republican administration and it's been distributed and administered under a democratic administration the vaccines are
3: safe highly effective there's nothing political about them
1: president biden walked into the room wearing a mask for the first time in weeks let's bring in bloomberg politics contributors jeannie She and Zeno and rick davis For insights on what we just heard, Rick, the president finally went there. He did not name Donald Trump, didn't get into Operation Warp Speed, but he did remind those, as you just heard, who are hesitant that the vaccines were authorized under a Republican administration. Will that help? And should
2: he have said it earlier? Yeah, I think it's actually a really important point you bring up, Joe, because, you know, he's using his bully pulpit as president of the United States to try and address this misinformation that's been out there. And the best best endorsement he has is from Donald Trump, who, you know, created uh, Operation Warp Speed to get uh, safe uh, vaccines into every arm in America. And I think I think it's long uh, due. I, I think that this is the kind of thing where I don't know why Joe Biden wouldn't have included this as part of the rhetoric when he first you know, laid out his massive yeah. inoculation campaign. But he's doing it now he's using his bully pulpit as president to try and clear up some of the the, the misinformation uh, that exists out there over vaccines. And, and I think it's obviously at a critical stage now, as he said, it's it's a life and death situation.
1: What's your take on this, uh, Jeannie? Some have even suggested he film a PSA with Donald Trump or have Trump do his own campaign to get people vaccinated.
4: Yeah, I, I'm not sure he should hold his breath on that. Um, and, and I'm not even convinced that public officials, elected leaders are the ones who are going to convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. I do agree and praise him um, for praising not just, uh, you know, the former president, but the Fox News hosts, uh, you know, KIV, a Republican governor. He even praised minority leader Mitch McConnell, who's spending a lot of money in his own state to encourage vaccination. So I think that is all important and that is all good. But I think what I took away from this is we see the administration moving a bit beyond carrots, still a little bit of carrots, you know, after Kroger and others, you can still get $100 if you get vaccinated now. But now we're getting more into the sticks. If you are a federal worker, you will be vaccinated or you will face the onerous testing and mask wearing, not able to travel, those kinds of things. You know, the White House, I think, feels strongly that they can't mandate all Americans get vaccinated, but they can mandate federal workers either get vaccinated or tested. And I think they believe, and I think they are Right on this that that is also a good role model for other private businesses organizations and we've seen a whole host of those from netflix to morgan stanley to google doing the same thing mm-hmm. so i think they're being a role model here and moving more in the direction of using sticks to make it onerous not to be vaccinated I
1: just want to mention breaking in the last hour the mayor of washington dc the district of columbia is now ordering all residents and visitors to wear masks indoors this happening just as President Biden walked into the East Room, this announcement. The city has seen a fivefold increase, I read, in the daily case rate since the beginning of July. So we're really talking about this big change in the last four to five weeks. Jeannie mentioned incentives, that $100 payment that we're, we're I guess, taking a cue from a Kroger stores. The president calling on a lot more of that
2: i'm calling on all states and local governments to use funding they have received including from the american rescue plan to give one hundred dollars to anyone who gets fully vaccinated i know the pain people who get vaccinated it might sound unfair to folks who've gotten vaccinated already but here's the deal if incentives help us beat this virus i believe we should use them
1: you know A hundred dollars, he says, worked at Kroger grocery stores, Rick. But I've heard about everything from Vax-a-Millions up in Massachusetts to uh, a jab for a joint, I think, was the campaign here in Washington, D.C. And those didn't seem to make the difference. So why would this?
2: You know, I think this is just part of the toolkit. I think that uh, he's not relying on 100 bucks to, to inoculate 100 million people. I think he's just hoping that that can attract a small segment of the society who may be motivated by having, uh, you know, 100 bucks in their pocket. Hmm. Uh, it seems to me it it diminishes the, the bigger message that he's trying to make, which is uh, really to put uh, pressure uh, from the presidency, from business, from the community leaders uh, on people who are unvaccinated. Uh, up until this point in time, you basically got. Um, uh, uh, a buy. If you weren't vaccinated, you weren't held accountable for spreading coronavirus. I think today was the first real step this administration has taken in saying to people who are unvaccinated, you're the reason the coronavirus is spreading now, regardless of whether it's, you know, uh, Delta version or any other kind. If you're unvaccinated, you're part of the problem. And And, and I don't know why this administration took so long to basically point the finger but the finger came out today and it wagged a little bit. And hmm. I, I'm sure they tried to put some icing on it, called 100 bucks a, a shot. But the reality of this is this message was a tough message for the American public, telling them to go out and get vaccinated, using the government and the and the mandates that he's putting into his agencies as an example of what he thinks other businesses, other communities should be doing.
1: So the summer of freedom, I guess, is over, uh, as we talked briefly about yesterday. Jeannie, you've criticized this White House for its communication strategy. Was this more of the same? Was it too late again? Or are they getting back on the right track?
4: You know, I think it is a step in the right direction. I do think it would have been smart had we, knowing there would be variants coming down the pike, not made the announcement that people vaccinated could remove their masks. I think that has created a lot of chaos. And, you know, the president, you know, today did take an important step. But let's not forget We are seeing showdowns on masks in the House of Representatives, where Kevin McCarthy is saying things like criticizing the CDC as a politicized uh, arm of the executive branch in this administration. We're seeing showdowns about schools. The president saying school districts should host pop-up vaccinations, talking about schools. Yet you look at Florida, you see the governor there calling for potentially a legislative session to say masks are voluntary, while school boards are saying they may require them. So, We are going to see showdowns on masks continuing. And I am sorry to say I believe that the administration has to own some of that with this jumbled rollout of masking and unmasking over these several months since they took office.
1: In talking about the communication strategy here, uh, Rick Davis, it was most recently talk to your doctor. They thought, "Okay, let's make this private. Let's let everyone talk to people they trust. Then they'll get the vaccine. We heard those lines repeated by many Republicans, including People on Fox News, personalities on Fox News are saying, just sit down with your doctor, figure it out on your own. Was was that already a fail now that we're paying people $100 to get a shot?
2: Yeah, man, good luck getting your doctor on the telephone. I mean, like, really? (laughs) Have they had a conversation with their doctor lately? I mean, you know, I'm still trying to get my physical scheduled, and maybe in three months (laughs) I'm going to see my doctor. Not just me, though. So, I mean, like, I think these things are are a little Pollyannish, right? I mean, like, we're fighting a massive uh, global uh, epidemic, and, uh, and the administration's treating it like, you know, a flu bug. Uh, so I, I, I think these guys, have, I, I think today was the first step uh, in an effort to try and uh, toughen up. And I think you. Would, I would expect to see more of the same coming forward.
3: Top Two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg
1: Radio. Infrastructure is moving. I'm just not sure exactly where. After the Senate voted to advance the bipartisan package last night, $550 billion in new money, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer this morning was all smiles on Capitol Hill. A massive investment in public infrastructure will create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. That's just what the doctor ordered. Just what the doctor ordered. Even Mitch McConnell had nice things to say.
3: Our country would benefit a whole lot from some targeted investment in the kinds of real, tangible projects that fit a common-sense definition of actual infrastructure.
1: But of course, the Republican leader stopped short of endorsing the whole two-track plan that Democrats are pushing.
3: The kind of focused compromise that our colleagues have been hashing out could not contrast more sharply with the multi-trillion dollar reckless taxing and spending spree that Democrats hope to ram through on a party-line vote later this year. we are joined
1: for the latest on this by Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, what can Chuck Schumer get done here? What would he like to get done might be a better way to ask it by the August recess.
5: Uh, I think he would like to actually pass that infrastructure bill through the Senate. Now, keep in mind, it's clearly not going to become law by then because in the House, Speaker Pelosi has said that she's not going to let the infrastructure measure go forward until they also get a Senate passed uh, reconciliation bill. That's everything else the Democrats want to do. That totals at this point, three and a half trillion dollars. The Senate could also get started on that. Basically, when you want to pass something partisan in the Senate, you take two rounds of votes, you set the framework with one vote, and then you actually fill out the bill. Uh, They want to vote on that framework at some point in the near future before recess and then finish up work on the whole $3.5 trillion bill sometime later in the year. Uh, So the Senate could get off to a good start and hold two key votes that actually get the infrastructure measure, the bipartisan one done, and then wrangle the Democratic votes for the next big thing in in essentially round one. Uh, But it's not going to be enough to actually get this to the president's desk before then. But it it would be a good start for the Senate to get started on both of those bills before they leave.
1: I'm sure Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi would love to see that happen. As far as the bipartisan bill goes, if we can call it a bill at this point, that which was voted on last night. I spoke earlier today with Senator Rick Scott. Who, who gave the line that we hear from many opposed to this. They said, well, the bill's not even written yet. There's no legislation. I therefore cannot vote on something like that. When will those blanks be filled in so that excuse goes away and we can actually talk about the policy?
5: Well, I don't think there was a procedural reason for them to put it out until at least tomorrow, maybe a little after that. The way they do this, it's, it's complicated, but here's the, as simple a version as I can give you. Right. Uh, they're working on it. They want to start things off with the procedural vote. They vote on another bill uh, to to end debate, to proceed to the bill. It's actually another bill. And they'll amend it with this infrastructure bill because they just you can you can hold that procedural vote before you even have the bill ready to go. Uh, they can't do amendments until they actually hold the second procedural vote to proceed to that vote which is expected to be tomorrow. So I think we're going to get that second procedural vote, and then they can amend it with the bill we're actually talking about. Uh, But they couldn't even do that today because they weren't able to do that second vote until tomorrow. Uh, So if I have tied myself into a logistical pretzel here with that, basically they didn't really have to put out the text at least until tomorrow. It could be the weekend Uh, And, you know, fortunately for the people who negotiated this, that didn't bother enough people to tank the measure. They got 67 votes on that first one, which was one of the more difficult procedural votes. But, you know, it's still alive.
1: And that is why Jack works for Bloomberg government. Well played. Uh, As as we look ahead to a final vote and realizing it could be a minute before that happens, are the numbers going to look a lot like the procedural vote last night? Do, Do we get a dozen or more Republicans to say yes on that?
5: Um, they need 60. It's difficult. The, the final vote on pass, passage could be even more difficult than that. I think there's going to be a back and forth that makes things more challenging. You know, today we heard some complaints from the House chairman on transportation and infrastructure, Peter DeFazio, saying he's going to want to make some changes. As there's a back and forth between the Senate and House, I think more disagreements may uh, appear that we didn't hear about from the small group of senators negotiating this that could shave off some votes, but really they are confident they can keep at least 60 votes in favor and a majority in the House. They may not have a glide path forward, but they're they're looking fairly good. But, you know, 67 uh, may be this feeling. They really just want to make sure they can get at least 60.
1: That would still be a pretty big deal for the majority here. Uh, just a minute left here, uh, Jack, As as we Consider what you mentioned in the House. Are these numbers all going to change once these bills are reconciled? If they are, will there be language from the House that gets into the final bill?
5: The House is going to want to get their hands into this legislation. How exactly they do that, they haven't made clear. There are kind of two ways or, or maybe three ways to do it. They could have that conversation now and try to persuade senators to change this and that before the Senate even votes. They could let the Senate vote. They could try to then pass their own thing in the House and come up with something in the middle afterward. Sometimes they do what we call ping ponging and they pass things back and forth that change between the Senate and House. And we see multiple votes. Not clear what they're going to do, but it it is clear that Peter DeFazio and other House members aren't just going to sit on their hands and do whatever the Senate wants. So there are going to be some changes.
1: This is why everyone loves Washington. Bloomberg Government's Jack Fitzpatrick, thank you for that walk and welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for joining us. These are anxious days for a lot of people, a lot of families who cannot afford the rent. The federal moratorium on evictions set to expire at the end of this week. We are almost there. And President Biden urging Congress to help this time after the Supreme Court said another extension requires new legislation. This came up today in the White House press briefing with. Deputy Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre speaking to evictions. In
0: June, when CDC extended the eviction moratorium until July 31st, the Supreme Court's ruling stated that clear and specific congressional authorization via new legislation would be necessary uh, to the CDC to extend morata- moratorium past July uh, 31st. Uh, and so, in light of the Supreme Court's ruling, you know the the, the president is going to work with Congress to make that happen
1: or at least ask Congress to act. So now what? We bring in law professor, housing justice expert, Emily Benfer of the Wake Forest Law Health Justice Clinic. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining us. To begin, do you see any chance in this actually being extended?
0: If we have any hope of getting out of this pandemic and protecting public health across the country, I certainly hope so. The situation is incredibly dire in this moment.
1: Well, the Supreme Court ruling kind of changed the rules here. President Biden uh, was prepared to extend this through executive order. What happens if this is not extended? I wonder if you can frame the fallout, not only for renters, but also for landlords, many of whom were reluctant to evict their tenants during COVID. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. If this is not extended, there are 11.4 million adults who are behind on rent right now, and one in three children are facing food or housing insecurity. All of those people will be at heightened risk of eviction the moment the moratorium lifts, and could suffer the poor health and long-term and economic housing instability that it causes. I think what's even more troubling on top of that is that this is the perfect storm. We have the Delta variant spiking. We know that eviction increases transmission of respiratory disease and that when states lifted their moratoria that we saw an increase in COVID-19 infection and death across those states. And at the same time, vaccination rates are the lowest in the highest risk eviction areas. So failure to stop the eviction crisis is guaranteeing a surge in the pandemic.
1: The president also says he wants the Departments of Housing and Urban Development, Agriculture, and Veterans Affairs to extend their eviction ban through all of September for people living on federally insured single-family property. Would that make a difference?
0: Absolutely. If federally assisted housing represents a large portion of our housing stock across the country, and those families are also at risk of eviction in this moment, so that could be a critical way to protect people from this instability and the public health crisis that follows. But it won't be enough. It is critical to protect people across the country from eviction by extending this moratorium.
1: Talking with Emily Benfer, housing justice lawyer from Wake Forest Law on Bloomberg Sound On. Can you talk to us about landlords for a moment? I know that that is not always the first place people look because they're considered kind of the bad guy in this case. But many landlords would prefer not to evict Their tenants and worry about finding new people to live in these apartments.
0: Right. In fact, we've actually seen the majority of eviction filings coming from corporate landlords, not small mom and pop landlords. And those are the landlords who really need this rental assistance, the $46 billion that's available to them. But so far, only about $3 billion has been paid out across the country. So if they're forced to evict their tenants before that rental assistance is available, they will lose their eligibility for that critical funding that could help stabilize them having suffered this loss over the last year.
1: When we talk about 11.4 million, I believe you said people, not families, potentially being evicted. You wouldn't expect that all to happen at once,
0: would you? It could happen in the coming weeks. That landlords whose tenants are behind on rent would be entitled to go forward with an eviction without this moratorium in place. And since the rental assistance is slow to be dispersed across the country, that that could be what we see happening.
1: You must be concerned, Emily, you know how long things take on Capitol Hill. How's this gonna get done by the end of the week?
0: I think where there's a will, there's a way. We've had a year of learning about this pandemic and about how housing is public health in this moment, more so than ever before. And that it's critical to our ability to survive the pandemic and also ensure that we can recover from it. And I think one thing that's really important to note here, the the single greatest predictor of an eviction is the presence of a child. So we are going to be evicting children in this crisis. And we know that the one in three, as I had mentioned, are facing food or housing loss. The eviction crisis undeterred will take their health, their childhood, and years from their lives, according to numerous studies, even before they start out. So there's so much to protect in this moment.
1: How long do you want this to be extended for?
0: We at least need another 30 days. It's it's critical to buy time to ensure that we can pay the rental assistance to the landlords who need it and to ensure that tenants can stay safely and stably housed. And that might just be enough time for states and local communities to perfect their programs and reach the people who are at the highest risk.
1: The Deputy Press Secretary, who we heard from just a moment ago, spoke to rental assistance that, in fact, millions of dollars are going out. Uh, from the Treasury Department to help people. Is it making a difference?
0: Absolutely. The rental assistance is helping people recoup the rental arrears from the last year. So it's stabilizing property owners and it's keeping people in their homes. That is the only thing standing between millions of families and the devastation that eviction causes.
1: Is there any opportunity to buy time while Congress works this out? Could that rental assistance, for instance, bridge a couple of weeks, or this is going to become a problem on the 1st of August?
0: The rental assistance isn't being distributed quickly enough to stop the eviction crisis come Monday. The only two actors that really have the ability to get in the way of this crisis and to stabilize our communities and ensure public health are members of Congress and state and local policymakers. They're the only ones who can stop the eviction crisis in this moment. We know that courts can also adopt diversion programs. They can issue general standing orders urging landlords to apply for rental assistance, but that's not happening in the level that we need it to or to scale.
1: Emily Benfer of the Wake Forest Law Health Justice Clinic. We appreciate the insights.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
1: The eviction moratorium set to expire, COVID cases on the rise, and the economic data released this morning, far from inspiring, with weaker than expected readings on GDP growth and new unemployment claims. These trends may ease inflation worries, as we just heard from Charlie Pellet, but they do not paint a great picture about the trajectory of our reopening, our economic recovery that was looking pretty good. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington and joined by Bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie Shi and Zeno and Rick Davis. Jeannie, when you put all of this together and consider the eviction moratorium we were just talking about with Emily, a couple of months ago, we were supposed to be on a trajectory of growth here. Are you starting to worry about the direction of this economy?
4: i think everybody or many people are starting to worry about it um and and we've seen that throughout this week and of course it was just chilling to hear your interview with professor uh, benfer and to hear the impact that this eviction moratorium has or these potential evictions have on particularly children but people across the country as we're in the midst of a pandemic and the question once again is can congress is congress able to step in and address this issue because of course it's not just the biden administration who's thrown this the congress it's as you said the supreme court as well so we've got that piece of it and people potentially in you know 11 million people potentially more or less thrown to the streets in the midst of a pandemic when we have an insecure economy i mean that is a recipe for a real disaster in this country on top of an already crisis situation of homelessness in places like L.A. and others. So I am truly worried as you couple these things together and then the Delta variant, as we've been talking about earlier in the show. So I think there is real concern out there.
1: Now, maybe I shouldn't have put all those together. Now now I'm wondering. I'm Rick, sorry, you spent don't. enough time in Congress to to answer this honestly. Is there time to get that done? How could that happen between now and the end of the week?
2: You know, I think they can uh, slap it onto a bill that's moving anyway. Uh, For instance, the security bill that we talked about yesterday related to capital security. There's something going on there that uh, can move really quickly. Uh, You just you just throw an amendment on there and and get it through. uh, Is there an appetite for that? Pardon? Is there
1: an appetite for that among lawmakers?
2: Yeah, I I think this is a win-win for everybody. I mean, it's a small enough amount of money because really the money's already been appropriated. And as as you heard in your earlier interview, it's being spent. It's just being spent slowly. Mm -hmm. And so this just gives it time for that money to actually hit the mark. And uh, I can can see that being a relatively, um, uh, I would say, bipartisan approach to this issue.
1: I hate to ask the cold question, uh, and I'm sure it will sound that way, but if this eviction moratorium is not extended and we have mass evictions, as you mentioned, the professor said more than uh, 11 million people could be evicted in the coming weeks without this protection. What does that mean for the housing market? We're topping out here, according to many, in terms of prices and demand. It has been a barn burner of a season Uh, for anybody trying to sell a house and a tough one for anybody trying to buy one. But does this turn the housing market upside down, Jeannie?
4: It absolutely could. And, you know, this is why we really do need Congress to act, you know, immediately, certainly in the next couple of days, because that is a real danger here. And, you know, the, the reality is, while Congress, and I agree, has probably the will to do this, this also puts off other things that they are trying to do. And so, you know, I think one of my concerns is how do we let it get this far where we're two days out from eviction? of 11 and a half million people throwing the housing market into disarray, as you've been talking about. And let's not forget the number again of these who are children. Um, that is something that we should not be in the United States in a position of facing. And yet here we are two days out.
2: How do
1: you answer that, Rick?
2: You know, I, I kind of put it on the administration. I mean, they were the ones who were aware that the judges said, you got to have Congress act on this again. Uh, they, they, they have... Uh, the uh, advantage of being able to try and direct this, this effort uh, on Capitol Hill. They have the majorities in the House and the Senate. I mean, wh- why did they wait this long? I mean, I, I, it's really confounding to me. Uh, and then you add to that, why did it take so long for the monies to get to the people who need it in order to avoid the evictions? Um, you know, $40 billion is a lot of money, and, 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 it's, and it's needed right now. Uh, to patch this hold if, if this goes down poorly and 11 million people are evicted uh, and you got 40 billion dollars sitting in a uh, account that the administration's supposed to be using that's uh, not going to look good for the for the president of the United States
1: so that's blame that's blame the White House time Rick
2: well you know there I don't know how you blame anybody else for that you feel the same way Jeannie
4: I do think they are going to be blamed, whether I would personally blame them or not, they will be blamed. He is the president of the United States. And so, you know, you can't really just kick the ball over to Congress and hope that they act, especially when to Rick's point, his party controls Congress obviously narrowly. So I am a little surprised that this has gotten this far down to the wire. But you know, in addition to the president, let's just be clear, Democrats control the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. They've got to move forward on this and they've gotta do it immediately. And this is what happens when they are so focused on so many other things. And yet these things are things that need to be addressed in the midst of a pandemic. I'm just stunned it's gotten this far.
1: Well, you're both and in, incorrect, I'm sure, to make the point that how, how come we had to wait this long? This could have been addressed quite a while ago. Uh, but that is often the way Washington works. We are inspired by deadlines. I have to admit, though, where's the news media been on this? This has been a wildly underreported story. Could you imagine 11 million people uh, being evicted over the course of weeks? That would get some coverage, I suspect, as we spend time with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeanne and Zeno and Rick Davis. I mentioned the economic data out this morning. Not great. Weaker than expected. GDP, new unemployment claims, somewhat disappointing, at least short of expectations here. Does this mean, uh, Rick Davis, that the Fed, and by that I really mean Chair Jay Powell, have been on the right track when it comes to dealing with inflation and therefore getting the job done for Joe Biden and therefore rehired? Will he be keeping the job under the Biden administration?
2: You know, everything we hear publicly, leaders in the Democratic Party and Congress seem to be uh, making statements that he's doing a good job. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any indication that they want to make a big change. It has a big implication on on obviously monetary policy going forward if there is. Uh, His uh, open market report yesterday was well-received, um, you know, in, in all these various categories of inflation and jobs and the virus and surging home prices and the things that the Fed is doing to sort of manage their side of the ledger. So uh, I, I can't see right now any real momentum or controversy that would put them or uh, Chairman Powell in the uh, target zone. But um, but look, I mean, when, when the economy doesn't perform as well maybe it tamps down the inflation fears but it it still we're in a recovery you know we're not in an expansion and the recovery is going to be influenced by things like the delta variant and what's happening right now on public health and so i i would say it's hard to make a midterm bet on this one right now
1: we know there are some progressives on capitol hill i'm thinking elizabeth warren sherrod brown or not been massive powell fans genie does joe biden reward him with a renewal
4: I think, you know, and I would follow what was at the Reuters poll, 90% of economists say, you know, obviously a small, uh, they had a small sample, but 90% say it's likely that he would, he would reinstate Powell. That has been the history of the modern presidency. And of course, I think it's in keeping with Biden's temperament. He usually doesn't like to rock the boat too, too much. That said, I think it is important to say that as you said, progressives are, are pushing a little bit on this I think there is some concern at that you have a white male in that office and that has been something that has been raised as have some of the you know there has been some sort of whispers on that front and so we may see him reward them or, or listen to that but I do think it's more likely than not that he retains Powell and if I could Joe just to go back for a second and I yeah. think one, one issue about the housing you mentioned the media I, I'm very happy you mentioned that because I think this is a reflection of the death of local media in this country. You simply don't or the dying breed of local journalists in this mm-hmm. country. You don't get the coverage of housing and these issues so much focus on the federal government so much focus nationally, rightly so, but you lose the coverage at the state and local level where these housing stories really are devastating so I think that's something we have to consider as we look at the media today in the modern era.
1: Or we just all preoccupied with infrastructure in Washington, Rick?
2: Well, infrastructure will help the economy in the mid and long term. So, I mean, maybe we attack some of these in, in different ways. But, yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, that was the big moving part this week. It was infrastructure week this week, so uh, it finally <laughs> happened. And uh, and yet, I think all these things can happen around that, right? I mean, these are all connected right now. What's interesting about all these public, big public policy issues is, the, the, the economy the infrastructure debate the the public uh, uh, health issues uh, mass mandates what the president said today these are all connected uh, it's very hard to find these big issues like this that, that that all have an impact on one another the way this does and so I think we're seeing a really unique time in 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 public policy politics and government and I think it's it's really important to spend the time like, like we have uh, debating these issues because they're, they're going to have a profound impact on American lives.
1: Rick Davis, Jeannie Shee and Zeno, our Bloomberg Politics contributors, thanks as ever. We'll leave you with a quote of the day on the terminal. Success is achieved and maintained by those who try and keep trying. W. Clement Stone. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg.